You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, Another uh, jam-packed week at the legislature as they uh, seem to be in a mad sprint to hopefully get done by the July 4th holiday. Uh, Almost felt kind of like uh, crossover week over there uh, with the... uh, mad crush of uh, deadlines that we see in the long session. There's not really a crossover week in the short session, but this is probably as as close as we get. Uh, Calendars in the House and the Senate seem to have uh, at least a dozen, if not more, bills on it uh, several days this week, and a lot of them uh, fairly interesting pieces of legislation that were uh, quickly making its way through. Um, And then, of course, the election campaign is, is still in full swing as all of this is going on. Uh, and the big news this week was Donald Trump's uh, visit to Greensboro for a fundraiser and rally. So we're going to talk about that in the uh, second part of the show this week. Uh, we're going to start off at the legislature and uh, look through some of the um, developments over there. Uh, Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer is joining me, and he's uh, been following some of those things this week. Uh, Craig, uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was this uh, wind farm thing, and it seem to have gotten that much uh, attention amid everything else going on this week. Tell us a little about uh, what those regulations would involve in this, uh, this interesting map that uh, basically covers a, a good portion of the state. Yeah, that was kind of a surprise. It popped up, kind of sprang up out of nowhere. Uh, uh, Re- Senator Harry Brown uh, put it in a bill um, that has to do with um, the, the wind, uh, setting up wind structures around military bases. A couple of years ago, the legislature passed a law that sort of set up these buffers and set up a permitting process. And as I understand it, nobody's actually been permitted under that set of rules yet. But this one is pretty sweeping. I mean, he, uh, uh, as far as I know, I mean, it wasn't widely known, but the uh, a veterans department or somebody in the administration hired an outside firm to work with the military and they came up with these flight patterns it's like five different color codes of you know how high they typically go and you know showing where the jets are versus the helicopters and anyway so this this uh, bill they introduced would would take that map and say you couldn't build any kind of wind farm wind turbine uh, in in any of those areas, and it just is, covers a crazy amount of the state. There are some blank areas where apparently you can you could build these, but um, you know it's just um, there are other restrictions that would also apply. So uh, there's a couple projects that are in the pipeline that uh, have been proceeding, and we're we're trying to work through this um, mix of federal and state permitting, but uh, they would apparently be grandfathered under this bill and forced under the new bill, which is more uh, restrictive, um, and, and they're kind of crying foul. But I, there's, there's something underlying this whole thing about the whole idea of alternate energy and those who don't think it's, you know, any more than kind of a, a passing fad. There, there's, there's definitely a couple camps that are developing along those lines. Yeah, and this kind of comes in the wake of that bill, which I, I guess uh, didn't go anywhere as far as I know, but was the subject of a front page in another story a couple months back about solar farms, uh, this legislation that would have, I guess, put such a severe restriction on where those could be located and how far they had to be from uh, homes and businesses that uh, yeah. that would have curbed that industry as well. Right. Um, this one seems like it's got a little bit more science or right. something behind it. Right. And another component of that is uh, uh, subsidies. Some of the uh, alternative operations are beginning uh, subsidies to get up and going and become competitive. That's worked pretty well. It's, it's, it's a pretty kind of a booming industry, I think, in the state. But uh, there are resentments about, uh, you know, picking winners and losers with government money, that sort of thing. 
And the other thing you covered this week, which seemed to suck up a lot of uh, hot air at the uh, in the House chambers over several days, was this bill about uh, food stamp recipients and, and sort of what happens when one of them ends up winning the lottery. What what was the big deal with that, and why did it go on so long? Well, it was uh, it, it 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 turned into one of those fundamental things: Are you kicking poor people when they're already down or not? Uh, you know, there's a sense that there's that welfare and food stamps and all that is fraught with fraud and and uh, that's sort of a mindset in, uh, in among some legislators what this particular bill would do would be a couple things require um, the lottery commission to report every earning over I think the figure they finally came up with was $2,250 is either that or 5,000 I there was an amendment I don't remember if that passed anyway lottery commission reports winnings to division of social services uh, and they cross-check look for lottery winners then follow up to make sure they're reporting their lottery winnings uh, if they uh, uh, another part of it would be to just increase penalties for uh, for a requirement that I think was imposed last year requiring uh, food stamp recipients to to work or volunteer or have job training so but it just turned into this knockdown drag out about you know are there really is this even an issue who really thought about the problem of uh, uh, you know food stamp recipients winning a lot of lottery money anyway that that kind of that kind of uh, turned into this usual back and forth yeah, and so they, they water it down at all by the end, or was it just kind of uh, Democrats complained loudly for a while, and then it just went through? There as- were some concessions. Uh, um, R- Representative Burt Jones uh, was working on it with a number of the Democrats who had concerns, and that he did make some concessions. That might have been the $5,000 figure, I'm thinking. There was also a uh, – uh, he did go along with a reporting requirement, too, that uh, one of the Democrats – uh, asked for every year report to see if this really makes a difference. Are there numbers showing this is a problem? Or is there money that you know the state is not recovering that it could? That kind of thing. So it's on its way to the Senate. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to jump into, and I, I covered this probably more than anybody, was the uh, tax income tax cap uh, constitutional amendment that came up this week in the Senate uh, that would basically uh, cap all income taxes to 5.5 percent, which is basically where the Republicans are going to uh, leave it uh, starting next year. That was a weird one, and this is sort of this weird process things that you see at this stage of the legislative session. Um, it was up for a vote on the Senate calendar uh, a couple days ago and uh, was pulled off not to be rescheduled to the next day as some of the other things on that day uh, were rescheduled, but to be calendared for a week from Saturday, the uh, 25th of June, I believe, um, which is odd because usually the legislature is not here on Saturday, and, and most of us hope that we don't have to be here on a Saturday um, covering the legislature. Uh, but uh, Senate Rules Chairman Tom Apodaca basically did his usual cryptic thing when, when asked about that. I, I asked him, so, so why did you postpone it? Well, because we're going to be here on that Saturday. Well, why are we going to be here? Is it the budget related? Oh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's work related. And then he just walks away. So yeah, you, we, you made, we made it. Some of us made a second attempt at uh, getting something out of him and got no further than you did. So I'm not really sure what's up on that on that day. It's a crazy time of year right now because some weeks I'll follow a single bill and the whole week or two weeks, whatever. This week I was all over the place. So we just don't know what bills are going to morph suddenly into something else. And we were expecting some kind of coal ash bill soon. That Yeah, there's supposed to be a grand week. compromise in the works, right? Yeah, but that didn't happen this week, or at least not publicly. Um, you know, is there going to be any kind of HB2-related fix? Uh, 
time apparently is running out. Everybody's talking like we're in the final stretch. Yeah, I'm hearing the the final budget could be out in the next week or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're getting close on on that end. Um, but yeah, it is uh, for for those who are just sort of watching more casually. It, it's it's kind of a struggle to cover this sort of the part of the session because uh, every committee meeting could be a rollout of a brand new bill because they've got this sort of gut and amend process where the bill filing deadline was uh, weeks, if not a month ago. So in order to get new legislation in, you basically have to take an existing bill and in a committee meeting where that bill is being heard, roll out a different version of the bill that may be something completely different. So what happens is that we often find ourselves spending you know hours of our day uh, sitting through meetings where bills are going to come out. They may be completely innocuous, not newsworthy at all, or they may be something about coal ash or HB2, and you just don't even know until until you get there, which is sort of the, the beauty of the lack of transparency and sort of uh, government structures that you would see in local government uh, that yeah. goes on with the legislature. Um, but then we've got the election coming up, so that sort of bleeds into it too. Um, Buck Newton was out with a, a press conference on Thursday morning of this week uh, to roll out a bill that I guess also had not come out during the, the bill filing period. Uh, tell us a little about what that was about and sort of what he's uh, accomplishing politically by uh, by putting this out there. Yeah, <clears throat> this has a couple levels of interest going on. One is the bill itself. There was a, a bill that uh, North Carolina and several other states passed back in 2008 uh, called the Jessica Lunsford Act, which had to do with uh, this nine-year-old girl who grew up in Gaston County then had moved to Florida where she was uh, abducted and raped and murdered. And so uh, the ensuing outrage caused many states to uh, increase the penalties for uh, child assaults, that kind of thing. Um, earlier this year, well, the, the, that law was sued, actually, the ACLU filed suit. Earlier this year, a federal judge found two parts of the law uh, unconstitutionally vague and overbroad. That had to do with where sex offenders can go in the vicinity of children. And so this bill attempts to address the judge's concerns by being more specific, spelling things out, trying not to be overly broad. And, uh, and, and it would go into effect if the appeal of the uh, judge's ruling doesn't, uh, doesn't take effect. The politics behind the whole thing is Buck Newton, running for uh, attorney general, had a press conference. He had some law enforcement people <clears throat> behind him uh, promoting this bill. Like within a half hour, it showed up in committee. Uh, they're going to talk about it some more next week. Uh, I, I think at the news conference, I wasn't there, but certainly in the committee meeting, Senator Newton blamed the Attorney General, Roy Cooper, for not vigorously defending this suit. And of course, he's not running against Cooper, who's running for governor, right. but by attacking Roy Cooper, I guess you're in effect attacking Josh Stein, who's the Democratic right. candidate, a former right. lieutenant to Roy Cooper. Right. And, and you have the convenient uh, thing that you're helping the governor's race as well. Exactly. That's part of the uh, narrative line of attack against McCrory is where has McCrory been? Why isn't he doing his job? And they were talking about a, 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 a sentence in the judge's ruling that said, basically, I've told the state they haven't proven their case. Uh, you know, they they haven't they haven't convinced me. So he kind of seized on that on that wording. But uh, you know, poly- everything certainly that Buck Newton does right now, uh, just like everything Roy Cooper and the governor and Josh Stein do, is very political. Yeah, I think Cooper. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly or uh, not Cooper, but uh, Newton. I'm pr- fairly certain has a tracker. There's a, a guy with a little like miniature camcorder and a tripod mm. who shows up to meetings and doesn't appear to have any sort of press credential. Although he sometimes mm. uh, avails himself of the seating reserved for press. And yeah. I, I've noticed his camera, I think, is trained on, on Buck Newton in the hopes that Newton will say something 
something that could, could be used against him in the court of public opinion. Maybe one reason Josh Stein resigned from the Senate so he could campaign because there was a tracker following him around uh, earlier. Yeah, so lots of uh, politics seeping in even more so than usual to the legislature. Uh, thanks for that, Craig. And we're going to jump over to our uh, PolitiFact NC reporter, uh, Will Doran, who uh, had an interesting uh, look this week into the uh, the wonderful wor- world of industrial hemp, which was a bill that was making its way through the legislature. I think is if it's not there yet, it's uh, close to uh, being on the, the governor's desk uh, by this point. Uh, and Will, tell us a about the uh, controversy over hemp and, and, and who's right and who's wrong. Like, is, is it weed? Is it not weed? I guess is the, the key question here. Well, not to get too scientific, it is cannabis, um, but it is not marijuana. Oftentimes you hear those two words kind of used interchangeably, um, but hemp actually cannot get you high, unlike marijuana can. It has different types and levels of chemicals that don't include the, uh, the THC, which is, you know, what, what the stoners are after. And so, but they look very similar. So a lot of people are scared that, you know, hemp farmers will use their fields to hide marijuana. And um, so as part of the, uh, the larger uh, bill on hemp, which is supported by the hemp industry, um, there have been some new regulations added in kind of based on this fear that, uh, you know, the hemp, the hemp fields could be used by criminals um, either with or without the knowledge of the hemp farmers to, to grow marijuana. And, um, but uh, the problem with that is that there's really no science to it. And actually the science says that um, if you do try and do that, it will ruin your your marijuana. There's really no better way to put yourself out of business as a drug dealer than by growing marijuana in a hemp field just because uh, the hemp will cause the marijuana to uh, pollinate. And uh, we, uh, you know, in the, in the article I did, you know, we talked to a couple scientists who say that that will basically cause it to lose all of its, you know, it basically just drug. Turns hemp, right? Yeah. It's, or well, something that's yeah. maybe less, less it, useful than it, hemp. It drops a lot of its, um, a lot, of, yeah. A lot of the THC will drop out, and it grows a lot more seeds. Um, and according to these hemp scientists, who are also, you know, surprisingly quite well versed in marijuana as well, um, seeds are very, uh, you know, unpopular among smokers. I guess they, you know, they're they're a chore to pick out, and they uh, they tend to like pop or explode when they get ignited. So basically, it would make your marijuana completely worthless if you tried to grow it in a hemp field. So here we are regulating these things with all sorts of rules. We even created a brand new felony, which makes it, you know, illegal to do anything related to marijuana around hemp. And they're limiting, you know, the acreage that can be used for hemp and uh, allowing law enforcement, uh, you know, access to all the hemp fields and, you know, creating a whole database and just tons and tons of, you know, regulatory stuff on something that basically is just, you know, not at all rooted in logic or science. Yeah, and I guess there's just this fear of these plants that look kind of like marijuana, and uh, some of the representatives uh, sort of voiced that concern. I think one was suggesting that there be a member of the clergy on the Hemp Commission, which I'm not sure what that would serve to do other than just sort of, uh, I guess, add God's blessing to uh, the the whole hemp regulation process. But Right. Hemp is usually used to make, uh, you know, the seeds can be used as food or pressed into oil, or the fibers can be made into car doors. Um, you know, I, I'm not really sure yeah. how that relates to 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and the interesting thing to me was so when they first uh, legalized this last year, sort of in this kind of last minute move at the legislature, I went out to this uh, hemp uh, processing facility that had just opened out in Spring Hope, which is about uh, 45 minutes east of Raleigh, very small town, um, kind of not a whole lot going on out there. Uh, but they have, uh, I guess, demonstration fields of a plant called Canaf, which is similar to hemp, but not quite as useful. It also looks like marijuana. So, right. you know, the, apparently this guy was getting people coming in off the street because he's got, you know, industrial hemp industries or something sign out front with a hemp leaf, which looks like a pot leaf, and then these plants that look like they've got pot leaves out front. But um, apparently, you know, he went to, once he assur- reassured the local law enforcement that he's not, you know, growing weed by the side of the road. Um, that would be you know, the worst okay. criminal operation, just advertising <laughs> marijuana leaves in your store. <laughs> yeah, and, and then growing it literally next to, you know, a fairly, you know, well-traveled highway. Uh, so that bill is, uh, I guess, headed towards the governor. Uh, last year, when they legalized it, he did not sign it. He let it become law without his signature, uh, possibly because of some of the political implications. Um, we'll see if that happens this time around. All right. Thanks for that, Will. And uh, we're going to wrap up this segment uh, with a little bit of audio from the uh, teacher protest that took place this week. A group of uh, teachers affiliated with the NC Association of Educators uh, did a 23-mile march from Durham to Raleigh to uh, protest uh, cuts to education, but also a sort of a grab bag of other uh, issues um, such as expanding Medicaid, repealing HB2. And after uh, not getting a meeting with the governor, they sat in the middle of the street on Morgan Street, shutting down traffic, and eventually about 14 of them got arrested. So uh, we'll hear next from the one of the organizers, who is uh, Todd Warren, who's a teacher from Guilford County, teaches Spanish there, uh, talking a little bit about uh, why uh, they were in the street uh, getting arrested. So we'll hear from that, and we'll take a break, uh, and then we'll be back to talk about Donald Trump. This is a result of the governor declining to meet with the teachers. I mean, we knew it was a long shot that we were going to get a meeting with him, but we also figured, you know, what would be the harm in him sitting down with with, with teachers and students and parents to talk about the state of education? And I understand they had offered some of his aides to meet with you guys. Was that agreed to, or is that not what you guys wanted to... We thought we were going to come come over and get a meeting. They're not here. Mm -hmm. This is where the meeting was supposed to be. Yeah, so they just had the building locked and there was no way to get in? Building locked, and we were here before 5 o'clock, and and the meeting was not supposed to be until 5 o'clock. Yeah. So those that were in the street, were those all teachers, or...? Um, teachers, parents, and uh, some teachers' assistants, but mostly teachers. Okay. Yeah. And what was the reason that you guys decided to, to go for civil disobedience uh, in addition to the, the march that you had been planned, I guess? Well, obviously, we're not getting the governor's attention. <laughs> you know, uh, he was last night at a fundraiser for Trump, okay, catering to the, to the, the wealthiest 1% to elect a president that we know that is explicitly targeting immigrants, targeting women, uh, and, and, and targeting, targeting LGBTQ people, he's out there campaigning and fundraising for the 1%, taking their money, and we can't get a call back from him. You know, we're, we're just teachers. We don't have that kind of money. Obviously, we're not the ones donating to his campaign. Yeah, is there a worry for the teachers that participated in this that this could, you know, having the arrest could harm job security, that sort of thing? Or Well, you know, that's, that, that's always a concern. Um, you know, uh, teachers went into this uh, eyes wide open that they, they, they know, but this is what our, our, our students mean to us. We're the ones come in every day that we see students that are homeless, students that are hungry. We're the ones that, 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 that see that these conditions are unacceptable, and they're not changing. They're getting worse. We're seeing uh, childhood poverty rates rocket in North Carolina. It's unacceptable. It's criminal. Hey, 
And welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. And we're going to talk this segment about uh, the, the subject that seems like everyone in the media and everyone in the country cannot stop talking about, and that is presidential candidate Donald Trump, who was in Greensboro this week for his first uh, North Carolina rally since he became the uh, Republican Party's uh, presumptive nominee. And uh, Lynn Bonner and Brian Anderson from the News and Observer uh, traveled to Greensboro and were at that event. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, to them about that. Uh, Lynn, uh, starting off, just kind of set the scene for us of um, sort of what this rally was like. And, and since you were at the uh, Raleigh rally a couple months back during the primaries, if you saw any interesting differences in sort of uh, the way this rally went down and, and what he said versus uh, what you heard several months back. Yeah, thousands of people there, uh, as in the Dorton Arena rally back in December, um, high energy. Um, unlike some of the more recent speeches where Trump was using a teleprompter, he was back to kind of his stream of consciousness riffs. Um, and, you know, throwing out lines that a lot of his supporters know. I mean, there's a, you know, at some point the crowd chants build that wall. And uh, in kind of like a call and response, he says, well, who's going to build that wall? And everybody shouts back, Mexico. So there's uh, there's some uh, lines and riffs that he uses that are, are pretty familiar by now. Uh, also, you know, taking on the press and saying, oh, look at those people, horrible people that back there, everybody boos. So it's kind of like a performance where everybody knows their lines. Um, he uh, Some differences from last year, though, I mean, now he's more pointedly taking on uh, Obama and Clinton. Uh, of course, back in December, he was talking about the people who were uh, the other Republicans um, who were in the primary. Um, he also uh, had kind of a response to uh, what Obama had said about him earlier in the day and said, well, Obama seems to be angrier at me than he is at the terrorists. Um, and he also did not take questions from the audience. Last year, he uh, had some. He called in some, on some audience members to ask him questions that he responded to. Didn't do that this time. Um, so it is very much like. Uh, I mean, the audience was very much like the uh, audience in Raleigh, but his um, some of his uh, lines, some of his uh, lines of attack are, were a little bit different this time. Yeah, and I guess this time, obviously, as the uh, presumptive nominee, he has backing from more of the state Republican Party than he would have several months ago. There were several, I guess, uh, statewide GOP folks. Yeah and, yeah, and there were some legislators there. I saw, you know, Dallas Woodhouse was there. Uh, there, You know, Trudy Wade, Chris Millis, uh, some others were uh, on the stage introducing him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a coalition of... Uh, of uh, elected officials and uh, obviously the party they're uh, backing him um, so a little bit different from uh, I, I guess significantly different in that way than uh, than it was in, in Raleigh. Yeah I know that's sort of, as far as the party unity angle goes um, when I covered a Ted Cruz rally a few months ago uh, Mike Hager the House Majority Leader was front and center right behind Cruz I assume was at the time a Cruz supporter mm-hmm. right. uh, now of course he's no, up there he's introducing Donald injured. Trump right exactly, exactly. so uh, it seems, seems to me at least with the, the people we saw at this rally and granted they were not the highest ranking legislators mm-hmm. that you could have gotten for this sort of event uh, but they're, they don't seem to be as concerned about the perception of being tied to Trump that you see in some of the national Republican establishment. But then there are some stalwart Republicans who are pointedly staying away. 
Um, I asked some folks if they were going or if they were going to a fundraiser uh, that was held earlier um, in that afternoon in Greensboro. They were like, uh, no. Uh, so yeah, I guess uh, Pat McCrory <laughs> was at the fundraiser, but not but at the rally. Exactly. And then yeah. we, I guess, didn't hear much from you know Richard Burr, Tom Tillis, et cetera, right, as far exactly. as where they were. Well, yeah, um, but you know. They're in Washington, but there's some others in in Raleigh who are who are not uh, not on the Trump train. So we'll see how that how, how that rolls as we get closer to November. Yeah, if the next Trump rally in in North Carolina attracts a few more folks than uh, than this one did, um, this one does first uh, attract quite a few protesters as well um, as the uh, uh, supporters that filled the uh, Greensboro Coliseum. And uh, Brian Anderson was outside the event, uh, I guess, in the the hours uh, after yeah. uh, Trump got off stage. Uh, what did you see out there in terms of the uh, protester clashes? Anything similar to some of the, uh, I guess, heated exchanges that we've seen in some other cities? Well, I think this was probably one of the more tamer rallies that I've seen. If you talk about, I guess, just before, during, and after, just so you get a fuller picture of it, before there were there were photographers actively searching for protesters a few hours before the event, and they were just looking for protesters to try and find photos that they could take of them, and there were no protesters really to be found before the event, which yeah. was very strange How to me. How do you find a protester before they start <laughs> protesting? Is there like a profile they're looking for, I wonder? Well, I know in previous rallies, there were, um, as people were entering the building, there were protesters shouting at the Trump supporters entering the building. Oh, okay. So I guess that's what the, I can't speak for the photographers, but that's, I, th- I think, what they were looking at. Uh, but that was before the event. If you look at it during the event, uh, compared to the one in Fayetteville that I saw, I also went to one in Radford, Virginia. This was by far the tamest of the three that I've gone to. Um, and I think I, I spoke with uh, the Greensboro Deputy Chief, Brian Cheeks, after the event just to kind of get a recap on arrests made and whatnot. Uh, and there were 20 people who were removed during the event. Uh, and of those 27 were arrested for either resisting officers or just not following instructions to leave. Uh, So only seven people arrested, no injuries. Uh, But the most interesting part was after the event. Uh, Right when Trump finished speaking, I went out. uh, And a few blocks down uh, toward Westgate City Boulevard, uh, which is just a few blocks away from the Coliseum. That's kind of one of the main drags through Greensboro, I guess. Yeah. It was about a two-minute walk away from the main entrance, so... A fairly distanced uh, space between supporters and protesters. Uh, and the protesters had marched off onto Westgate City Boulevard. Uh, and there were some attempts for skirmishes, it appeared. Uh, we had Trump supporters on one side of the street and Trump protesters on the other side of the street. And what the protesters were trying to do was it seemed like they were trying to confront the Trump supporters or interact with them. There was a lot of shouting back and forth from the, the corners of the streets. Uh, but as they approached um, the street itself for the Trump protesters, police were very good at intervening, blocking a pathway. Uh, and a few people were arrested. We don't have an official count on that. Just several people were arrested. And I got yeah, to I see saw that. one of your videos where yeah. it looked like there was a police 
officer chasing somebody and then sort of got them down on the ground for an arrest. Exactly. And that was an attempt for a protester to cross the street. But at the same time, you can't just say protesters were attacking the Trump supporters because after the event, there were some Trump supporters who blatantly walked on the side of the street where the protesters were and held up their signs, kind of enticing them to have a a skirmish. But the protesters, for the most part, were peaceful. There looked like an officer was going to have pepper spray uh, that he might have that he might have used, but it didn't end up being necessary and overall was fairly tame, but still a little bit scary as far as the protests go. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And you got a little bit of audio. We're going to go out on this uh, from Trump's speech. Yes. Um, So so I I guess for sort of for both of you, I want to jump in on this uh, for the biggest highlights of of, uh, what what lines of attacks he was using (laughs) and and what he he was criticizing this time around. Well, Colin, I, there's many different lines yeah, of attack. Yeah, we could it's spend really like a three-hour podcast <laughs> on that, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, but I think, uh, like Lynn had said, a lot of it was focused on going after Obama and Clinton. We, we've seen a little bit in the past week or so a more polished Trump, a, a man who's reading from teleprompters, who's acting more presidential, who said he could be the most presidential person if he wanted to be. Uh, but he didn't have that intent. And I think the the biggest moment that stood out to me was in the wake of the Orlando shootings. And there was some Twitter controversy with him saying, congratulating himself for uh, being against terrorism uh, and people who wish to do harm. But um, at one point in the rally, Trump had talked about uh, how he supports the LGBT community uh, and the rights of everyone. And that had to be the softest applause out of the entire rally I heard. It wasn't so much what Trump said. It was the response that it got for protecting the rights of all citizens. And that was a very soft applause that I heard after Yeah, well, you don't hear too many shout-outs to LGBT at Republican rallies (laughs) in North Carolina. It's just not not an issue that they generally delve into. (laughs) And then right after that, Trump says— Hillary Clinton, she's no fan of the LGBT community. She'll be bad for women. And then you hear a, a bolsterous round of applause on that note. Yeah, if you, you can pivot over to Hillary Clinton, then you'll you'll get your applause at this sort of rally. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to take a listen to a, a clip from the Trump rally, and then we'll take a break and be back can with— I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. Right, thanks. <laughs> um, one of the striking things for me was uh, he reads uh, the lyrics of uh, <laughs> a song called The Snake. Yep. Um, and he tells people to, while he's reading it, to imagine, you know, our open borders and people pouring in. And the the lines of the song lead to, it's about a woman who takes in an injured snake into her home and it ends up biting her. Um, and he sort of equates that to immigrants coming into America. Uh, that's something he didn't do in December. And it was uh, it was fairly striking. Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite the analogy. I didn't see it get that much national press. Like It seemed to be one of the, the big takeaways for those that were in the room because yeah. that is sort of a an odd odd comment, odd analogy. But uh wasn't his first time either, too. We've yeah. heard that, I'm not sure how many times before, but it certainly wasn't the first time that he has told that 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 story yeah. about the snake yeah, and what yeah. was interesting was he kept saying oh i'm gonna read you a poem i'm gonna read you a poem and then he'd go off and talk about something else right and it's <laughs> like oh yeah wait until you hear this and then he'd talk about something else i don't think like okay get to the poem already. well there were also a couple <laughs> i think out of the protests that we did see i think there was like two or three kind of major not major mm-hmm. but ones that broke out and that broke out during this 
song when when he was talking mm-hmm. about the snake. So maybe that threw him off a little bit. I'm not sure, but yeah. certainly wasn't a, yeah. a, a normal start to finish story. And what you're going to hear in uh, the audio uh, clip that I got, just to kind of segue it, uh, is right after that, I believe, he talks about uh, the Orlando shooting, how you have to protect all Americans. You'll hear a, a louder applause, but by trust me, by comparison, that was probably one of the softer ones. Uh, and then you go back to the the usual rhetoric of uh, rhetoric, I should say, of criticizing Miss Clinton and trying to be an advocate for women. All right, we'll take a listen to that, and we'll be back with headliners of the week. But as we all know in Orlando over the weekend, a radical Islamic terrorist killed 49 people at least and wounded dozens more, dozens. It was the worst terrorist attack since September 11th and the worst mass shooting in our country's history. We want to live in a country where gay and lesbian Americans and all Americans are safe from radical Islam. wants to murder and has murdered gays and they enslave women. Now, Hillary Clinton talks about women and she talks about how she's going to do. She plays the woman card more than any human being I've ever seen in my life. And frankly, I don't even think women like her from everything I see. She's no friend of women, and she's no friend of LGBT Americans. No friend, believe me. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. And it is indeed time for Headliner of the Week, our favorite segment of the podcast as we wrap up this week. And uh, got four panelists to uh, offer their predictions of who the biggest newsmaker uh, of this past week was. And uh, we're going to start off with Brian Anderson from the News and Observer. Brian, who's your Headliner of the Week? Well, in the past, I focused on the national level. So this time, let's bring it back uh, here to North Carolina with the legislature having a very active week. Uh, my Headliner is going to have to be the passing of Cheyenne's Law. Uh, Last 4th of July along uh, Lake Norman, a 17-year-old named Cheyenne Marshall, uh, she was uh, a victim of a boating incident uh, with a drunken driver, and that led the parents to reach out to Larry Pittenger, who's a representative uh, a Republican from Concord. Yeah, Larry Pittman, known for uh, the other thing he was in the news for recently, was his his uh, gun rights yeah. uh, constitutional amendment. But this was one where he had a lot of support. Yeah, and usually he's a hard man to reach out to. But this story, he was very open about talking. And part of that is it was a bill that was passed unanimously by the House and Senate to add penalties to uh, drunk boating drivers to make sure that instead of a class two misdemeanor. Uh, if there's a serious injury or a death uh, from an impaired driver, that it would result in a felony. Uh, so Cheyenne's Law, that's going to be my headliner. And I just wanted to say, talking with the parents, uh, it was a very emotional story for them. But to see a potential for something good happening, 
Uh, the mother said that Cheyenne's probably smiling down on them today, and to have her name in a bill that might help people, uh, that's the moving part. So a, a sad situation, but always good whenever you can see something good try and come out of something that's so awful. All right. Uh, Cheyenne's Law in the Hat for uh, Headline of the Week. Thanks for that, Brian. And uh, we'll turn next to Lynn Bonner from the News and Observer. Lynn, who's your Headliner of the Week? Headliner, uh, I think she'd be North Carolina. Since uh, the both of the presidential candidates uh, the, for the major parties uh, are, are visiting here, it wasn't very long ago that uh, North Carolina was a flyover state. Um, you know, candidates would come here to suck out uh, campaign money, but would not uh, hold any rallies or advertise. Now we're seeing uh, something very different. We had Trump here this week, uh, Clinton scheduled for next week. So I'll pick uh, North Carolina. Uh, we're going to go next to Will Doran from the News and Observer. Will, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner is Senator Richard Burr. Um, he actually kind of made two different headlines this week. Uh, he was uh, in the national news for both of them. Uh, one, he was, you know, as uh, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, was grilling the CIA chief, John Brennan, after uh, the Orlando uh, gay club attack um, and, you know, asking him, you know, some some tough questions on what we could have done to, uh, you know, prevent that more. And then uh, secondly, and uh, just as notably, uh, rumors are still flying about him as a potential uh, Donald Trump vice president. And uh, this is the second time now in about two weeks, I think, that uh, these rumors have popped up. And uh, for the second time, he hasn't really done anything to disavow them. He said, oh, well, they're only rumors. And, you know, it doesn't affect me or, you know, yeah, I no forget what his come, exact yeah, words But at no point were, did he come yeah. out and say, no, this is not something I would consider. He just kind of put it out, pointed out that Trump, I think, has said he's not going to pick a nominee till the convention. So uh, I don't think it was those rumors very, are going to get put to bed. It was very intriguing that he keeps kind of dancing around this and, you know, doesn't really directly address it. I think it's made a lot of people kind of raise an eyebrow at something that they might have normally just written off. So for these two... Very different, but <laughs> very notable things. Richard Burr. All right. Richard Burr in the hopper as well for Headliner of the Week. Thanks, Will. And we'll turn lastly to Craig Jarvis from the in Craig, who's your Headliner of the Week? Well, HB2 did bubble to the surface briefly. Uh, on Tuesday, a contingent of Hispanic ministers came to Raleigh, had a, had a rally, and uh, ur- urging legislators to stand firm, don't back off HB2, don't modify it, don't change it. Uh, it this all was happening kind of in the immediate aftermath of the Orlando shootings. And I, I think uh, uh, last Friday, the, uh, the, the supposedly there was going to be about at least 100 of these ministers were going to be coming in. On Monday, they were saying, well, some of them had backed off. It just seemed to be in conflict with this uh, issue, talking about discrimination. I mean, the victims of the Orlando shooting. And uh, ultimately, I'm not sure how many showed up. I counted 50 in the press room. There might have been the 80 that the... Uh, Values Coalition says showed up, but um, uh, you know that that's 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 where that stood. Yeah, HB two sort of keeps percolating into the news, um, and um, is possibly headed for some sort of uh, changes. We we heard from Darren Jackson over the weekend that he'd seen some drafts of some things that would make some minor tweaks to it, sort of deal with the governor's suggestion. That hasn't come out yet, and in most of the uh, legislators. Um, 
have have said they haven't seen anything or, or that they're not uh, aware of anything in the the pipeline, at least on the Republican side. So we'll see if something happens between now and the the end of session. It's not uh, it's not everybody's favorite subject. It's something that you don't hear uttered very often. Somebody uh, speculated that uh, if if anything, it might be the lawsuit provision that dealt with whether or not you can file a discrimination employment suit in state court. Uh, Perhaps that could be addressed in a big technical corrections bill, like a last minute, oh, by the way, sort of thing, rather than a separate bill. But that's just guesswork. Uh, so that gives us brings us to uh, the choice moment. Uh, we've got HB2, we've got uh, the state of North Carolina, we've got uh, Cheyenne's Law, the uh, new drunken boating law, and we've got U.S. Senator Richard Burr. And out of that, um, I think I'm about to go with Lynn's choice on this, North Carolina, uh, for uh, being the uh, the state that's uh, going to get a lot more attention. I mean, we're, we're very far out from November, but uh, back-to-back weeks with the, the presidential candidates coming here for, for big events uh, definitely tells you that this is definitely a... A, a battleground state this year, and we're going to be seeing a lot of Donald Trump. We're going to be seeing a lot of Hillary Clinton and probably all their surrogates as well uh, over the coming months. So uh, that brings us to the end of this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this week, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.